Greetings program. Hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. This is Minute 75. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and returning with me today is my accomplished, handsome, and brilliant guest co-host, Sam Dalmage. Welcome, Sam. Welcome to you as well. Welcome back. Oh, you're welcome. It's a wonderful... I like that I'm welcoming you, even though you're having me on your show. <laughs> yeah. Yes? Yeah. Thank you. It's, but, it's, you know, con- consider yourself welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on my show. It's, uh, it's very good. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you on your show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what happens in this minute? Sark flexes on his lieutenant. We see some awesome grid bugs. The recognizers are getting closer to the solar sailor, and Sark tortures an unrepentant Dumont. So Sark finishes saying Bitbrain to his lieutenant. No, Bitbrain, telling him to prepare Dumont for Inquisition because he needs a little relaxation. Then he continues, but first res up the carrier for pursuit. But I'm a little confused by that line because like, aren't they on the carrier like right now? I don't know what he means by, uh, what do they mean res up the character? Like maybe it just means prep the character or does it mean like the command module is resed but the rest of it is wireframe right now, conserving energy. Uh, if that's the case, I'd like to see it res up because that would be Yeah, cool. it also uh, I noticed um, sometimes that uh, vehicles and, and things don't always look the same depending on where you're looking at them from. Okay. Uh, earlier in the film. Yeah. And uh, I think I noticed it in the uh, the earlier scene with Clue, before Clue buys it. They're sort of cutting back and forth between the screens and things. It was a little... I've also noticed a pretty big size discrepancy between the interior of the tanks and the exterior of mm-hmm. the tanks. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of Tardisy inside the tanks where I'm like... Mm, it is kind of Tardisy inside the tanks. That's not the size of the cockpit, judging from the outside there. So stuff like that, you mean, kind of, or like uh, that's more like just an editing inconsistency. That's not quite what you're talking about. No, no, it seemed like some things were more like wireframey and something like wireframey from one direction or on one screen and solid on another screen. Or okay, something sure. Like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you probably would have clocked it about seventy episodes back. But then well, I haven't seen inconsistencies like that. I've seen different style calls. Like the bikes are different than the recognizers. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the, the recognizers aren't transparent, but they are, they have a very obvious wireframe thing happening, yeah. whereas the bikes are more fully realized and shaded. And so, yeah, but I, you know, and then because in the minutes coming up, we mm-hmm. get to see the carrier D-Res. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, so I guess it can flip back between resing and non-resing states, which is what this is referencing, but not showing. So... Whatever. It's an offhand loop. it's an offhand line that you wouldn't ever really notice until you're going into it in the depth that I'm going into it. Yeah, because it sounds like you're saying warm up the engines, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like res- contextually it's like, well contextually start the, yeah, start the car. Yeah. We're off. Yeah. You know, like uh, tell everybody full thing get the boilers going because we're about to hit full steam ahead kind of thing. Yeah, I mean I I uh I do uh electrical work and we we start the trucks in the morning if yeah. they're going to get driven, right? Somebody yeah. goes and starts the truck because in 15 minutes or so, somebody's going to get into it and drive it. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's got to be ready. So there. res up the carrier. Re- res up the carrier, exactly. So the lieutenant goes to leave and Sark says, one other thing, don't think anymore. I do the thinking around here. 
And we get a close-up of Tony Stefano's face stoically taking the abuse being dished out by Sark. And it's cool because Sark right here is doing a great job of taking back any of the sympathy that I was having for him because of his like severe beatdown at the hands of the MCP a few mm-hmm, scenes mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, he's back to being a rabid jerk face. Like He's dealing with a lot because he's got the pressure from the MCP and he's got to uh, capture, uh, capture Tron. Oh, it's a good kick the dog scene. Right. Exactly. David Warner's just firing on all yeah. cylinders here. Yeah. Just like going to town on this uh, on this poor lieutenant. Which I is a great jumping off point yeah. for a digression that I've been wanting to do uh you know, since I came on board here. Let's do it. I want to talk about David Warner. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I want to talk about David Warner. Uh when I was uh when I was growing up when I was a kid, I was a big reader. Yeah. Uh read a lot, read a lot of science fiction. Um Read a lot of Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay. I devoured, um, I had like a big hardbound collection of Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and a big hardbound collection of H.G. Wells. Okay. So when Time After Time came out in 1979, right. my mom took me to see it. So I got to see H.G. Um, uh, Wells chase after a time-traveling Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. uh, played by David Warner. And it's Malcolm McDowell. Who's, yeah, yeah. Michael know. McDowell. Uh, Malcolm McDowell plays uh, Wells, and yeah. and uh, David Warner plays Jack. David the Warner's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Jack the Ripper. Like, yeah, like you know, back then I was a I was a freak. Today I'm an amateur. Oh, you know, wonderful. And awesome. um, so I loved, I loved David Warner. And then uh, a couple years after that, he got to play, uh, and even more villainous villain who was so villainous that his name was evil yeah, yeah. in Time Bandit. Yeah, yeah. And just like a wonderful scenery-chewing villain role. Yeah, Time Bandits has come up on this podcast a number of times. I don't doubt it. But it's also come up on a lot of other Movie by Minutes podcasts, too. Like, this is one of those movies that everybody's seen and yeah. everybody loves and occasionally references, but nobody's done it yet in this format. And that's something that I would really right like on. to do. But anyway, right yeah, he's fantastic in it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, not as the devil, but as evil itself, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so here we have, uh, like, a, a Triple dose of David Warner. That's right. Right, playing three sort of facets of of the same villain, fighting with himself. Yeah, that's really true. I never really noticed it like that before. Like I know he's doing both the voices, but the MCP fights with Sark, and the MCP fights with Dillinger. Yeah, so, like, like Dillinger and Sark are both just. Taken it from the MCP, but they started, yeah. But Dillinger started by like giving yeah. it to the MCP, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's like, yeah, that's uh, the the team bad guy is not getting along, he's not getting along with himself very well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. And and uh, this scene, uh, this scene here is just like vintage scenery chewing David Warner. I just, love oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's great. I, I can't get enough of it. This is like what my uh, 11-year-old self loves to watch on screen. So, yeah, you know. yeah. And I, I, from what I've heard, David Warner himself is a little tired of playing bad guys, but it's just so hard when you're Oh, like, I have no doubt. Like It's like if you want Clancy Brown to be the romantic lead in a in a funny rom-com, you know, it's like, well, t- too bad. 
yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to happen. You know, there's a lot of these characters, characters. Yeah, and poor character. David Warner is probably like all of these movie execs and directors grew up watching time after time, Time Bandits and Tron. They're like, ooh, get David Warner. You know, and you know, he's like, it'll oh, be okay. great for all the people like me. Yeah, like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, great for you. And I was like, what are you about forty eight? Okay, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but oh well, he's still around, and he's uh, he's still he's going. To, he still shows up at conventions, yeah. you know. Same with uh, Bruce and Cindy; they they all they all show up at conventions. Right on, right on. Yeah, so you know, good for them. They're still they're none of them seem to have. They all seem to have goodwill towards the project. Yeah, and an unending amount of pleasant surprise at the continued interest in something that they did. Yeah, what, thirty or forty years ago, like just and, a long. You know, time. I'm sure the, the the project was pretty good to them. Yes, in terms of one uh, one in hope. terms of getting them some marquee value. Oh, in terms of getting them some some marquee value, definitely. Uh, like the film found a new life on videotape afterwards, mm-hmm. um, even if it didn't. It made its money back, I think, in its initial run, but it didn't. It didn't explode the way they thought it would. Now there used to be, um, you know, you you would know this. There were little like, especially with Disney, there were like little companion books, right? Yeah. Right, I remember one of those for Black Hole, and it's like, heck yeah! You know, here, as a as a consumer, you can get the little little companion book, and it's not, um, no, it's not like a novelization or, or no. it's not like a narrative, exactly. No, but it it'll it'll sort of tell you what's going on. Yeah, which was kind of useful for a movie. Like I this. am so happy you brought that up because yeah. there is a YouTube clip of the entire thing. Because it came, a lot of those books came with a recording. They came with a record, you know, like they had like a, 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 a oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, a yeah. telling of Star Wars. Then it was like when you hear R two D two, diddly diddly dee, right. turn yeah. the page. Yeah. And so when this one, it's the same thing. It's like when you hear bits say no, like turn the page or something like, or there's right. a right. there's a tone or a yeah. or a line or something that tells you to turn the page. But none of the original actors are involved. So there's a, you know, it's like late at night, Alan was working in his lab. Right. I have to get to my Tron program, you know, says somebody who's not Bruce Boxlight at all, yeah. at all, you know, <laughs> and it's all, it's all, it's summarized to the point of like, that's not the movie I watched, you know, but the, and the drawings are all, uh, some Disney artist, you know, yeah. no, I'm sorry, like dis- no disrespect to the person who did the illustrations are great, but it's not somebody that was involved with this production. Oh yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, it's all, it's all just, you know tangential side product but it's gold it is solid gold and i could do i could do a minute just on the read the read through book uh and i've always been trying to figure out a way to try to bring it up and play some of the samples but that's what we'll that's what we'll do here is uh is play some of that because it's fantastic here here now yeah because there's bits of it that i wanted to actually right on when i found it yeah i was like i wish i had included some of this in the like the intro and outro of the show oh, itself, yeah. because there's some just you know some gold of like you know he disappeared into the grid, not knowing where he would go, and all this I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll link to it, yeah, uh, so people can watch it, and uh, I'll play some clips right now. This is the story of Tron. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the computer sound like this. Let's begin now. It was late at night, but computer programmer Alan Bradley 
was still hard at work at his computer keyboard. Oh, it's like someone or something is trying to keep me out of the computer system. Come to think of it, it's been that way since Dillinger took over the company. That very night, Alan was called... And that was, uh, that was wonderful to listen to, that bit of listening that we just did. What did we just listen to? Uh, some clips from uh, the book that, uh, that I've been talking about for the last little bit. I was blown away listening to that. It, it, it <laughs> was that cool? uh, It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it was wild. Like, it shed a whole um, different light on it for me. Yeah. And I was able to sort of look at it through this, this, new through this prism, whole, other, right? uh, whole other lens. Whole other lens, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for playing that. Thanks for bringing it up. So I've been wondering how to shoehorn it into the podcast, and you just did it there. Consider Great. it shoehorned. Consider it shoehorned. It's a uh, title of my no whatever. So we cut to the solar sailor finally making it through the extremely hazardous field of blue bubbles without incident. Few they uh, coast out into clear black skies with nothing in the way. And I need to make a huge correction here. Uh, this Make is the correction. This is a correction that I said uh, before. Uh, the Solar Sailor is not Sid Mead's design. Uh, the Solar Sailor is Mobius's design all the way. I'm so sorry. Sid Mead did take a stab at it, but it was his design that looked too organic and strange, so they went with Mobius's design. It's 100% my bad. I got that mixed up in my head because Mobius's designs often look soft and out there, and Sid Mead's designs look more real-world and functional. So mea couple. I feel bad, but there it is. I just, I've mentioned it about six times over the last couple minutes about how they... They didn't go with Mobius's design because it was too weird and out there, and they went with Sid Mead's design, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was exactly the opposite. So I have to uh, rescind my earlier uh, things, which is it's a it's a pretty big a pretty big point to mess up in a in a in a podcast such as this. So, so the design has sort of looped back on itself and done a half turn. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, for anybody out there, it's a little was, Mobius reference for all you Hey-o. nerds out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, People tell me that I'm condescending. Uh, that means what? I talk down to people. Oh, that's what it means. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. Some say that Mobius is uh, still designing the Solar Sailor. Okay. Endlessly designing it. Endlessly, maybe. You might, you might say. Now, the bubbles coming up and across the energy beam with a little wobble were done by uh, Magi Synthivision, who also did the recognizers. So the scenes with the recognizers and the bubbles were done by them. And the scene... But I don't know. The scene of the solar sailor in the bubble field had just blue spheres. So maybe those were done by Triple I or the solar sailor was just comped into those shots. I'm not sure how that works. But uh, the, the, through the magic of one of the cool things about this movie is that three different or four different computer companies worked on the effects. But they are edited together in such a way that it looks like they were all done by one company. Mm-hmm. And when you take that and throw in. Uh, the sort of real world analog negative cutting stuff they did. It's amazing that it all looks like it's uh, in, in taking place in the same world and it's not just a bunch of different, you know, like, oh, here's this shot that is radically different from that other shot because yeah. it was done by a different company and they all look like they were existing in the same place. Yeah, it looks like they had like a pretty robust style sheet to work off of. Yeah, definitely. But now we get to one of my favorite moments in the entire film. Yes. The grid bugs. Now is is this uh, 
just conventional animation because it, it looks like it. It sure is. Yeah. It sure is. It's amazing conventional animation. Um, we see an orange grid with black squares at the center of some of the intersections. Points of light spark in the middle and race down the compass lines to all four sides of the square. They turn into green legs, and the black square in the middle attached to the legs is now green as well. The legs lever the main square up, and now it's a creature with four legs, hinged near the end and coming down to glowing points where they touch the grid. The middle bank kind of origamis out to a complicated sextant-looking geometric structure taught by a rudimentary security camera uh, head with a glowing pink lens. It pokes itself up higher, blinks, spins around quickly to look to its left, spinning quickly to look right, disappearing with each spin into a shape that insinuates it's doing a cartoon like 520 each time, not just a 180. It hinges its head up to tilt to look at the sky, changing shape to have a narrower, longer head, and a different shape lens. And its legs move, taking big, exaggerated, insectile exact steps so that the two legs are now on the left and two legs are now on the right. And its head now reverts back to its previous shape, looks forward, and now it starts to locomote off screen. And its walk is very funny because it's got this like single-person sort of pump trolley hand car up-down uh, movement, like a water strider. <laughs> Yeah, it's got this yeah. water strider insect twitching across the top of a lake using its, you know, lightweight and hydrophobic hairs not to break the tension of the water's uh, top I really feel like a podcast noob because I just made an elaborate physical gesture <laughs> across the table at you to show that I knew what you were talking about. Yeah, he sort, of, he sort of waves his arms like this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, that's a very, that's a very uh, like, podcast thing. Thanks for communicating that on this audio medium, you jackass. You can't see it right now, but he just winked. You know, there's that, all that kind of, yeah, that's why whenever I say something in quotes, I actually have to say air quotes so that, (laughs) because people can't see your hands. Uh, So we get a, we get a wider shot of the orange grid and we see that nine more black squares in the intersections are in the grid points. This diagonal perspective is, is, is such that for a second, it's hard to tell if we're looking up at a ceiling or down at a floor, kind of an Escher illusion kind of thing going on. But we see the same animation play out on all nine of the squares as they all turn into grid bugs, quickly standing up, rotating and walking comically off screen. And it's an amazing, amazing sequence. Uh, the sequence was done uh, in wheel in like I I fell in love with these guys back in 1982. This mm. is one of my favorite parts of the movie because I was like, oh, great bugs! What are those? Those right. are amazing! Yeah. I love them. I can't get enough of them. And but you did get enough of them because they don't reappear. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. By definition, I yes. had uh, I had my fill because they are uh, they do not come back. And I drew pictures of them and yeah. I wanted them to be real. Uh, they showed up in the video game. Now, I spent a lot of quarters on that game. It's a good... It, the game made more money than the movie did, so I think you weren't alone. Are that. you for freaking real? <laughs> no, it made a lot more money than the, the movie The game did. made more money than the movie. It did. It did. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's wild. So I think there's a, there's a level there where you have to take out waves of grid bugs before you take out the MCP. Um, but this is the first yet final time that we see them in the film. It's just wild to me that that like for 
every person that spent what five bucks on a ticket. Uh-huh. I don't know how much a ticket was in those days. Uh, well, it was two fifty Tuesdays, so I imagine five bucks sounds like a yeah. So decent. Uh, that means that on average, bucks. for every person that spent five bucks on a ticket, at least twenty quarters went into that machine. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, a real testament. Like we've talked a lot about how people didn't understand how much money video games were making. Yeah. People thought video games were doing pretty good business, yeah. not realizing that in 1982 they were already eclipsing Hollywood by a wide margin. Yeah. And these days, forget about it. When people are paying $60 per game and you're selling millions of copies, um, like who cares how much money the Lego movie made? You know? And the movie doesn't stay in the theater forever, but that machine can stay in a local arcade for ages. Yeah, which is, I think, also the appeal of the home video market at the time. Was like, and, and also, but the now, machine, the the game had a couple of things going for it too. It sure did. Like the the, the uh, cabinet looked exactly like the game in the movie. Yeah, the cabinet was sweet. It had the IP from the game. It had the light cycles, which was the coolest. Yeah, uh, and it had that sweet ass joystick. Yeah, the big blue, uh, the, the big, big blue, blue trans translucent glowing yeah. joystick. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really, really good, really iconic. Yeah, when you think of the Tron video game, you're like, oh, I see that clearly. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of games out there that you can't really do that with. You're like, well, I had a joystick, sure, but I remember the game. But this is one of the ones where you really remember the the actual uh, cabinet. You know, yeah, that and the um, that and the Star Wars. Uh, yeah, game the Star that Wars. Had that sweet little 360 swivel controller. Yeah, with some awesome. Yeah. Awesome video games out there. If you had, this is something I only asked one of the other co-hosts, yes. but if you had like a MAME cabinet arcade machine, yes. what would be like, say, the, let's say you could only choose five games. Like what, what, what games would you have on it? And let's say the controls were interchangeable. If we don't take the, uh, the interface into account. Um, well, is it just like a MAME cabinet with a regular monitor, or can I have vector graphics on it? You can have vector graphics. If I can have vector graphics on it, then I would put all the vector games on it, because I can always get a MAME emulator for my PC. Sure. Right? But it won't look like Battlezone. Yeah. It won't look like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tempest or Asteroids. Yeah, yeah, or Tempest. Crystal yeah. Castles. Or, or oh, was gosh, Christmas? what was that? Um, no, Cyrus? No, what was that one? Jeez, What's the one you're thinking of? Like a planet? And you could, you're like, you had a, a, no, there's one. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a game that was like Asteroids, uh-huh. but instead of left and right rotate buttons, it had a paddle control that could spin your ship, and it was boss. Okay. Omega something? I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it Omega was something. really good. Yeah. We're going to have to look that up. Yeah, we're going to have to look that up. Because that was really good. All right. Well, you look it up while we talk a little bit about um, in in William K- in William Calais's book, The Making of Tron. It says that John Norton is credited as the sole animator on this entire grid bug sequence. Like he's also the guy that designed the recognizer very early on, and that's a design that didn't change at all from the initial sketch to the uh, to what we see in the film, which is wild because the film its journey from uh, concept to uh, execution by Disney was a wildly convoluted road where it changed a lot over that over that period, as any movie does from its uh, initial idea 
to what ends up in the theaters. But these grid bugs were conceptualized by him extremely early on as well, right around the same time as he did the, the recognizer sketches. He took six months to hand animate this entire sequence, which blows my gosh darned mind. I mean, I don't even know how he'd create these tones and light and solid surfaces with the tools at the time. I can get doing it now with Photoshop and the help of some 3D software, but back then, I don't know, airbrushes maybe? I'm not sure. It looks fantastic. And the grid, while grid bugs were supposed to be characters throughout the film at some point, uh, by the time they'd hit production, they realized that they honestly had no use for them in the plot. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they needed the sailor, the cycles, the tanks, the recognizers, and the carrier, but the bugs honestly had no real relevance. They were so cool that, it, that they kept them in. That they kept them in because they were so wild. Like four companies were going full bore on the other scenes and a team of effects animators were killing themselves doing post on the rest of the film and there was no time to give the bugs a bigger slice of the screen time, either just from a manpower standpoint but also from like a narrative standpoint. But Norton worked so hard on this particular sequence and it turned out so well that they decided to keep it in. It's, it's just, it's a testament to his work. Like I still, I love it so much but it's just like we can't leave this on the cutting room floor, guys. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it no longer has any bearing on the film as a whole, but we can't leave this on. Yeah, the we can't just floor. say we're not going to play those notes because because this is it's so boss. This is so boss. Yeah. Right? it's why you see it's when you see a scene in a CG film that yeah. was cut, yeah. and it's finished. Yeah, it's like that. That hurts. Oh yeah. Most of the time, a scene's going to get cut from a CG film at the storyboard stage, yeah. or at the animatic stage, yeah. or something like that. But if you see a, a deleted scene from a CG film, that's like done. Like the scene, like the scene of Tron. You know, there was some heavy drinking going on when that when that <laughs> when news I, came down the pipes. Oh, like, I'm sorry to hear it's like this. guys, uh, it's beautiful. I'm going to put a hundred and fifty dollar bottle of scotch on the table. Everyone, pour yourself a drink. Y'all got your drinks in hand. Cheers to you. We can't use it. It's cut. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that's exactly oh, how man. a lot of those goes down. Because it's, it's the same with the Tron and Yori scene, the, the, the romantic scene, the deleted scene. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. It's done. Uh, it's got like, you know, it's, sev- 78. It's done. It's You're good. done. <laughs> it's got 18, You're done. It's cut. It's eight, done. 18 it's finished. Yeah, exactly. It's got, it's got 18 layers per frame for this long oh, really? sequence. Yeah. She ch- it's like Yori changes costumes. She's got this, like, it's this wild, wild scene that has the audio. It has the soundtrack. It has everything. And it was cut. So you're like, you know, that got right up until release. How, they were how elaborate are the effects involved in those glowing costumes that they walk around in all day? Super elaborate. Yeah. Super elaborate, super analog, and super unique. They invented processes for this film that were never used again. I thought so. Yeah. Because by the time they finished making this film, they had found better ways to do these effects. I bet they did. And along be- the way. Along the way. And because the film didn't do so well, a lot of the nascent digital mm-hmm. effects work mm-hmm. that became the standard 11 years later uh, was just abandoned. And they had to like reinvent the wheel when they came up with it later for, like I don't know, whatever, the Avengers or whatever you want to yeah, yeah. talk about. But the, um, the, 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 a lot, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real tragic sticking point for a lot of the people that worked on this film because they're like we were on the cusp of giving everybody the ability to make the matrix but because the film didn't do well it was all just like mothballed and like well 
that's a dead end and people moved on to making dramas or whatever so kind of mind-blowing that it didn't do well i just assumed it did because i was like a 11 year old kid that loved it and yeah. all my friends loved it it's a it's a big it's the summer of 1982 mm. and within six weeks we got poltergeist blade runner star trek II: the wrath of khan tron the thing uh road warrior uh conan the barbarian Whoa. we got it from like the beginning of june to like one week past july we got all of those films just coming at us like a machine gun real knockout punch having a face down star trek oh. 2 and blade runner and et oh and et and et and et yeah okay so like come on Right, so like it's just bad luck, man. It's bad luck. Some of them rose to the top, and some of them got lost in the shuffle. A lot of people say Blade Runner flopped because people didn't get it. They say the thing didn't, the thing flopped because people didn't get it. They say Tron flopped because people didn't get it. And I'm like, you're not wrong, but also the playing field at the time was ridiculous. Yeah, and all of these films found a huge life on videotape afterwards because they're great. Yeah. But people didn't see them at the time because they had to choose. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah. choice at that time was embarrassing. Like it was just yeah. the riches on display. Yeah. I don't think has ever happened since. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's a real shame that it flopped because they put everything into it. And they were sure. They knew they had something unique and beautiful on their hands. Yeah. And it was kind of hubristic because they were like, man, this is going to be huge. They, every single person involved on the film felt that in their bones. This is going to be massive. This is going to change cinema. And then it didn't. And it really it gutted most of the people that worked on the project. No doubt. So they're, they're all very, very appreciative and happy that it still has a life and it still has people interested in it. But that must have been real tough. Yeah. Real tough to take. Uh, in answer to the question that you asked me about five minutes ago, yeah. in Sorry. my MAME cabinet, I would have Battlezone, yep. Star Wars, Tempest, and Omega Race. Nice. Okay, cool. Yes. Uh, one thing about this grid bug scene, which is pretty cool, is that the music in this scene mm. is very comical. Yeah. And this is, uh, it makes me think of the, like, the something funny is happening music in the old Star Trek series. That, yeah. like, doop 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 doo You know, that sort of light. You know, yeah, we've yeah. got the, you know, like, maybe someday the Ioceans will want a piece a bar action, you know, or, or that like that show finisher music, but it's a departure for the music because there's no. This is the only scene where there's this kind of comical, comical music that I can think of. And I think that's probably a good call, given that they don't bring these guys back, right? So they're yeah. like, okay, we're gonna take this cool little thing. We're not gonna use the music to set up a sense of menace because then people will right expect this danger, and you know, we just, in the dialogue, we just said we're going to have to watch out for these things. Yeah. We don't want to go too far down this road. It's going to be very weird that we don't see these things again. So yeah. we're just going to say there are these comical little hazards walking down the street, and we're off. Yeah, watch out for the spiders. Uh, but, you know, basically they're no real threat. Yeah. They're more funny than anything else. Yeah. And, it does make me think in passing. Do you ever see uh, Runaway with Tom Selleck? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, Gene the, Simmons was the bad yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. It was in, that was one of the first films that was filmed in Vancouver. Yeah, right? like, well, well they, the, they had uh, scary uh, spider robots in it. That's right. Yeah. That had your name and they, they were programmed to sniff out your DNA and oh, then yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Crawl, uh, crawl up your neck and inject you I or something so. like that. I think so, yeah. Gene Simmons has a sweet, uh, sweet death in that movie off yeah. the side of the BC Law Courts building. Yeah, yeah. Where he gets swarmed by his own bugs, 
because he sets them free to attack everybody, and then right. I think someone hacks them and turns right. it around, so it's like attack reverse the polarity, reverse the polarity, his, so his, like his, uh, they all uh, attack him. So friend or foe, yeah. So he's he gets described as the enemy according to like all of his bugs. So he gets like swarmed and killed, and yeah. So the little swarm of uh, the little swarm of grid bugs made, swarm, made me yeah. think of his little army, of definitely spider robots. Yeah, which I think was very very close to this. Might have been 1983 that Runaway came out because Runaway was very, very close to this. Robot Spiders and uh, Gene Simmons's short-lived acting career. So there's that. It's cool. And then we hear Yori say, like you said, this isn't going to be easy. If those grid bugs get us, we've had it. In what sounds like a pretty obvious post-production voiceover recording. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the grid bugs don't look like they can fly, but I guess the insinuation here is that if you fall overboard on the game sea, the grid bugs will swarm out like piranhas and uh, you will be a snack for them. I think that's the... That's the that's the insinuation. That I'm that's what I'm inferring. Just like victims were a snack for Gene Simmons's spider robots in 1984. When oh, 1984. Out. Okay, cool. All right, cool. Uh, we do a quick pan up uh, to the energy beam uh, from the from the grid bugs, and we see that there are now recognizers coming out of the bubble field as well. So this is like the light sailor just came out of the bubble field. Now the recognizers are just coming out of the bubble field. So that means the recognizers are gaining. We see them racing along, still locked to the beam. But then we cut to them flying, and they're not attached to the beam anymore, which is a strange sort of inconsistency. But in the coolest and most 80s shot in the film to me, or one of them, uh, we see one recognizer growing a web of energy between its mandibles, and it lets a bubble go through it, popping the bubble into a bunch of concentric impact circles. Uh, so we've got like an airbrushed yellow line of energy bisecting the shot to the airbrushed purple horizon, red outline recognizers flying around with blue energy nets popping between blue airbrushed bubbles into the red wings of an electric oven top element, followed by bright pink and bright green particles, spheres of energy. That's so amazingly 80s. <laughs> you know, this is like a Memorex videotape uh, design. It's so amazingly cool as well, but it really showcases that the recognizers can actually do something offensively. So far, we've just sort of seen them bumble around, except for stomping on Clue at the very beginning. Uh, but then, even then, they only capture them. So this is like, oh, they have they have offensive weaponry. They can yeah. do something. It's know? also funny that they're called like recognizers and not enforcers. Yeah, that they're like, oh, I know that guy. There he is. Yeah, like that's their that's their that's job their function apparently. But I kind of like that they they're they're investigators that see through stuff. Like they're recognizers. Like you're like, I'm up to no good, but I'm hiding. And the recognizers like, no, we you're see not. You. I see you. Yeah, which I think makes them. It gives them a sense of menace, but yeah, they're not called enforcers, even though they are. Their design uh, origin concept was to make them look like gorillas, so they got the big like strong gorillas. Yeah, so they've got the big strong dangly arms, and they've got like a. They look uh, like the Acropolis. They don't look like gorillas. I know, right? I know, but they're like if you if you were to make a gorilla out of the Acropolis, out of yeah. yeah. As a random aside. The, they mention in the creator's commentary that the director of Lion King, Roger Allers, uh, worked with the Tron team back in the day and actually helped design the MCP back in the 70s. Oh. So that's kind of a neat little feather in his cap. The circle of life. The circle yes. of life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Uh, we cut. Okay, so this is this is so much fun. Now we're getting into some meat in this minute that mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. love. Um, we cut to Sark's carrier, and inside we see Dumont uh, glued to a wall in much the same way that Clue was glued to the wall in the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Dumont is out of his huge bulbous cyber barnacle costume. And is now was that a Mobius design, the cyber barnacle costume? Heck yes, it I was. thought it, it might be. It glows Mobius, yeah, it yeah. screams Mobius, yeah. right? And uh, but now he's in this uh, swimming cap with a chin strap and a robe with some really cool circuitry designs on it. A wave of energy slams into him, stopping and washing slowly across his face as he rides in agony. And then several bolts come from all sides to hit him at once, lighting up his entire silhouette in red lighting. It's all hand done. They mentioned in the creator's commentary that the electricity power that slowly washes across his face was done by animators with a dry brush overlay that was turned into high contrast and then reversed out and then airbrushed to add effects and glow and depth. And that's it's just amazing how much hand animation is in the film, considering it got touted so much as a, a CG miracle, you know, which it was. But there's just almost every shot has a bunch of hand animation in it as well. Well, and it's like how much of, of uh, like when you watch Max Headroom, yeah, you know, Max Headroom has this like immaculate, elaborate makeup to make him look like he's CG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the the only and even like the the spinning background is like the only CG element. Like, yeah, you know, because he. Well, I think maybe they enhance his eyes, or maybe he had contacts in or something. But yeah, exactly, exactly. You're like, oh, it's entirely CG. It's like it's almost not CG at all. Yeah, you know. I I find some of those effects a little uh off-putting like yeah. the like the red obviously done by hand uh uh effect around him when he's when he's on the the torture block there yeah uh like it, it doesn't look electronic to me no it looks it looks hand drawn and it's but it's torture it's like torture yeah. electricity so I, I give it a i give it a pass but there's a couple other scenes where like the arm that comes out of the wall to deliver an energy bolt to Krom when they're playing the high lie game on the rings at the beginning is like so hand animated. Yeah. It's like squash and stretch and it's kind of jittery and you're like, oh, this is not even remotely CG. But then when you get stuff like the grid bugs or some of these effects, like electricity effects, or even when somebody dies and they dissipate and they get these little 90 degree traffic paths. I love the grid bugs, but that first close-up shot of the one grid bug you, like you look at that and you're like that is hand-drawn animation yeah it's squishing all yeah. over the place and yeah, yeah and just the the look of it like it looks like the solid cell yeah the color the yeah, lines yeah, look yeah oh, my uh i can i can dig that for sure sark yes they mentioned sark is going off uh we get a shot of sark looking down at dumont and we can see that dumont is crucified against a neon triangle across from another tr- neon triangle which means that there's uh there's room for two here in this uh in this torture room but dumont is by himself right now oh i see um and then we get and then we get another mini episode of my favorite show the david warren show the uh uh it's the Dumont and Sark show. Oh yes, starring David Warner and Bernard Hughes. Yes, we had a little bit of it in a previous minute. So he's sort of blazing the trail for we'll Alan Rickman with these like Shakespearean trained actors going on to to portray these wonderful scenery chewing villains. In a way, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of British actors that have that um, in their in their. Uh, 
toolkit in, in, in their toolkit in their clip as it were like i think that in their quiver oh my gosh who played the uh, saruman christopher lee christopher lee and then ian mckellen and then uh who played tarkin in star wars who played tarkin in star wars really mm-hmm. my dear you're far too trusting you may fire when ready that guy was like, he was in like 9,000 Hammer Horror films, but he's another very uh, well-trained actor. Vincent Price, you know, all these. I am, was it Cushing? Peter Cushing? Yes, it was yeah, Peter cool. Cushing. Yeah. Thank you. Gosh, I was losing my mind there. Yeah. But anyway, that that whole, they even say in mm. in uh, in the book, in the commentary, they're like, like Stephen Lisberger is like, yeah, I did it. I cast a British guy as the villain. Ha, ha, ha. You know, yeah, sorry. Yep. But David Warner said yes, and you you don't say no. You know, yeah. like David Warner, I'm like, that's a huge get. So yeah. it's a cliche bad guy, okay, but it's uh, it's well worth it. This guy is so good. So, yeah, it is the, uh, the David Warner and Bernard Hughes, Dumont and Sark show. Sark looks down at Dumont torture, at Dumont being tortured and asks, had enough? And uh, Dumont responds in a cantankerous fashion with the solid gold, uh, what do you want? I'm busy. <laughs> and to which Sark responds with just amazing acid and dry sarcasm right off the cuff. Busy dying, you worn out excuse for an old program. Which <laughs> is just like, doesn't miss a beat, you know, just like... Oh, busy dying is such a great return to which busy uh, dying seems like it could have come out of the mouth of evil and time bandits. Yeah, like for sure, like just the same like, uh, and th- and that same kind of like I'm surrounded by idiots. But it's you know it's, why can't I get some love? Why don't why won't you die? But it's such a a, a tennis match because he's like you know had enough and he's expecting like yes yes I'll tell you I'll tell you but he gets what do you want I'm busy and he's I got one in the clip already yep. busy dying yep. you. <laughs> Yeah, old jackass. Like it's like it's almost like these guys have known each other for fifty years, and this is not the first time he's yeah. been on the triangle yeah. of, de- of death. You know, like so. Um, and then Dumont returns. Yes, I'm old. busy trying my patience endlessly, <laughs> as you do every time we do this. I'm really gonna kill you this time. <laughs> I swear to God. Yeah. Are you? Are you, Sark? You know, like it's good to see you too. And then Dumont retards, uh, yes, I'm old, old enough to remember when the MCP was just a chess program, which is, I think, something Dr. Walter Gibbs mentions in the first part of the movie as well. But I don't, uh, but I don't know. But I, I just love these twos. Uh, they're back and forth. Oh, this, this, this dueling banjos, uh, you know, professional actors, uh, you know, on in years, on an experience, just just sniping with each other. I could watch another half hour of just these yeah. two trading barbs in uh, in a detention cell. Yeah, you know? to 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 no advancement of any plot. To no advancement yes. of any plot. Just a sheer uh, aside. Just yes. an enjoyable uh, twenty minutes that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Is that the best you have to offer? Is that the best you have to offer? Yeah, that's the best I have to offer, and it's not going to get that good again. You know, yeah. Busy dying, you miserable excuse for an old program. Oh, man. I can't get it. I can't get enough. It's so funny. But that takes us up to the uh, to around the end of minutes. It's not going to get that good again. Well, your mother liked it. Why, you little? <laughs> Why, you little? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Meow. Meow, meow, meow. Meow. 
Um, yeah, okay, no, I talked about that already. Okay. So uh, go over the differences between the screenplay and the novel. In the novel, Sark isn't pursuing the solar sailor, or at least that's what Tron and Yori think. There's no mention of recognizers hot on their tail. So this sort oh. of shot of the recognizers closing on the solar sailor, it's not in the, it's not in the novel at all. They got away. And right. now Flynn's, uh, Sark's trying to track them down. And I guess in later minutes he does track them down. But this whole thing of of uh, the recognizers tracking down the solar sailor, that's not in the, in the novel at all. Uh, Flynn marvels at the solar sailor, and he recognizes it from a NASA research design simulation. Like a literal uh, solar sailor. Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. ship, a concept ship from NASA about going out into space and using solar energy. And he's like, just like wow man that it's been like reconfigured inside the grid to take advantage of energy beams uh it's sort of repurposed from its original design but that its original design was uh stolen from nasa which is pretty cool stolen from nasa by the mcp by the mcp yeah that sounds like a really interesting story for cryptonometron cryptonometron yeah absolutely chapter the subplot this <laughs> chapter 135 of cryptonometron the gang by Neil Stevenson. the gang steals plans from nasa right. you know like and he looks at the floating stairs between the cockpit and the walkway thinking that that's not even <laughs> it's like rogue one the rogue one of tron the rogue one of tron yeah absolutely <laughs> they all died but uh, but this is how they got the NASA plans. This is how they got the NASA plans to make the solar sail. Yeah, Sark 233 gave his life. <laughs> it's, it's an, I like the idea that Sark uh, is killed by the MCP at the end of every single scene in this movie. And we just keep seeing different versions of, uh, of Sark that's had his, uh, his memory, memory wet. So uh, he looks down over, and there's another great... I mean, they couldn't do it, but this is one of the highlights of a novel, is that... Uh, Flynn looks down over the walkway down to the game sea and he's seeing these great plumes and sprays of color as the waves crash and do these ocean things into each other. The description's really beautiful. Like I would have liked to have seen that, you know, and like Yori mentions, uh, not only grid bugs, but also like illusions and talks about how a lot of programs go missing out here. So Sark probably won't follow them because they're in like dangerous waters, untested waters that they can only get through with the solar sailor. But it's really hazardous to go there by any other means kind of thing. Yeah, it seems like spackling over the whole like, can these guys really be that hard to find issue that yeah. they dance around in the film, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it's about. But she also mentions uh, huge grid eaters and data pirates, um, which is which. But she mentions that they can um, they can outrun anything. So don't worry, because this is the lights, the solar sailor, cryptonometron, cryptonometron chapters one thirty seven through one forty two through two eighteen. Yes. Like this is, <laughs> I'm like pirates. You know, I'm like, did you just say pirates? You know, like, I want to see some pirates in Tron and like huge grid Cryptonometron volume two. <laughs> volume two. Like dinosaurs or whales with teeth that eat the grid. Like, yeah, I want to see this whole Tron ecosystem. Let's see some Tron antelopes, some Tron centipedes or pterodactyls or dragons. Like, it'd be so sweet. It would open up a lot of questions, but I can really see it. Um in the novel, they fly over some craters of cities that the MCP has blasted down to 2D powerless dead zones. Cities. Cities, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, they, well... Well, just like, I mean, I didn't, don't remember seeing cities in this world before, per cities se. Cities is a... Uh, uh, like, they're building the solar sailor in, like, a factory suburb. 
mm-hmm. you know, so like there's, and then we see the big, the maze that Clue is looking for the program in at the beginning of the film. Yeah, like those, yeah. all those sort of mazes that are uh, mirrored in that endless cubicle shot. Yeah. You know, those are, you could call those cities. And when they go to different aspects that look like they have more haphazard lines or the background, uh, the wallpaper on the walls looks jagged and and uh and and like a like a a solarized close-up of a circuit you know like those are those are sections of town that have had their power choked down to nothing so they're they're in the process of decomposing kind of thing so there's all this stuff in the novel that really i don't think quite made the leap to film it's there Mm. but it's not apparent it's offered without explanation but it's offered in such a subtle way that it's not even noticed yeah yeah so in the film in the film but it's there uh, yeah, so the blasted cities. And, but there's also this sweet scene of Tron by himself on the bow of the ship, shaken to his core about Flynn's casual reference to his old buddy, Alan One. Well, at least he stayed awake. You know, at least Alan stayed awake this time. And like he's like, so he's, he's palling around with the god that gave me my instructions. Right. There's a user on board, and he seems like a bit of a doofus. Yeah. You know, like, and I'm on this mission. Is my mission trivial like yeah. he's he's suddenly he's like he's having this huge crisis of of faith but he's keeping it under wraps because he's yeah. tron yeah, yeah and uh and so but he's on the prow of the ship by himself one of my parent is not infallible yeah 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 and he's hucking his disc yeah out into the void yeah and then catching it and then hucking it and catching it and hucking it and catching it trying to like you know Almost like I guess like a fighter, uh, you know, punching the heavy bag, trying to like work through some some yeah, and trying to trying to that, wrestle this idea down to something he can manage. Yeah, yeah, right. So he gradually he feels the solidity of the disc returning to his hand and his mastery of the weapon and the purpose held within, and he figures that it changes nothing, and that his purpose is his purpose, and that it's game on, and he just whoosh, puts it aside. He's like, okay. It's a great little scene. I could almost, I can almost see it in the film. Yeah, and I can see why they never put it in because Big it's time. this wordless time eater of a scene. But it's a really poetic scene of Tron coming to grips with some really deep stuff. Right. And uh, and it would have been a real neat little acting showcase for for Bruce Boxleitner. Well, they probably figured that every additional minute that they put in the film was going to be another 45 minutes of your listener's time. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Correct. In the future, if someone does a movie by minute, but it's also going to add like countless man hours Mm -hmm. to, uh, to the film itself. Like they had to take out the faces and the hands. Yeah. Because in the beginning they weren't going to do that. Yeah. They were going to add the circuitry, but then they were like, Oh geez. The faces aren't blending as well as we could. Well, we're going to have to remove the faces and hands and put them on their own layer. Oh, man. And that's like, oh, for every frame? Yeah, for every frame. So we're going to add those two layers to every frame, ship it to Taiwan. And when we talk layers, this was all optical with plates, right? Literal plates, literal layers, literal blown-up negatives that they had to, like, scalpel out and stuff. So they plus uh, like a little Photoshop After Effects layer, you can just click on it, no, isolated, super Bob analog, Jungle, keep going, super analog, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, the, uh, everybody involved knows the exact count of the frames. Oh, 
they talk about the the 196,000 frames of Tron. They talk about like, or I can't remember the exact number right now, but yeah. they they know it. It's yeah. burned into their brains yeah. of the exact number of frames that they had to to do in the oh, film. Oh man! Because the the amount of just real world organization, they had to like rent trailers just to keep boxes of the negatives. Yep. In order and ship them back and forth internationally to get the work done. Like it's holy fork. Yeah, bonkers. Uh, the torture scene of Dumont and Sark plays out pretty much the same, um, except that in like the clue torture scene with Sark in the beginning of the film, uh, Dumont's in like ski boots welded to the floor that are sucking away his power or mm. like blasting negative power waves or discordant power through him. Like there's a whole thing uh, when uh, Sark's talking to the MCP, he's in these anklets, these power socket anklets that are like charging him full of power or right. detracting power from him yeah. as controlled by the MCP. So whenever there's a prisoner in the movie, in the novel, they're in these 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 anklets that are welded to the floor with guards surrounding them with their uh, their oh, their cattle ca- prod their rainbow cattle yeah. prods. Um, but they they change that for the for the film. Clue ends up against this wall, getting derezzed, which is fantastic. And now Dumont's up against the the wall as well. And I think it's a good change. The 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 ski boot thing, I think, is I'm glad they changed that. In the screenplay, it's pretty similar to the novel, except when Yori is pointing at blasted kingdoms and talking about creatures. I'm so glad they cut this. She also points at some great geographical features and says, that's the mountains of data over there. And then that is the, you going to take a guess? If you've got two mountains, what's in between the mountains? It's a valley. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of valley would be inside the grid? A valley of despair? No, a Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Right. Silicon Valley. Yeah, so she's like, that's the mountains of data over there, and I think that's Silicon Valley over there. Ooh. Yeah, so like, but um, nut, 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 And that's the Valley of Silicon. <laughs> and then she points out the blasted kingdom and talks about uh, how most of the grid has no power now. And Flynn says, lousy utility companies, they're the same wherever you go. So those are all both uh, fantastic lines to get snippety snipped. I think, mm-hmm. you know, they were very um, not bad, but not great. For the most part, when a line is cut from the screenplay, good call. Mm-hmm. You know, which is uh, which is pretty cool. But that takes us up to the end of minute seventy-five. I have nothing to add. I, I think we. Uh, it's a good minute. It's a great minute. Um, these three minutes have been fantastic and a lot to chew on. And I have to reiterate, it has been fantastic having you here as part of them. Very glad to uh, to drop into your, uh, your into your little odyssey for for three minutes of your time. Yeah, you've brought some <laughs> uh, some real insight into into the into this into the proceedings here, which is great. No rock and roll. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, check out more at TronologicallySpeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at TronologicallySpeaking. Or send us an email at TronologicallySpeaking at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Minute by Minute Listeners page. Go over to Pond 5 to get yourself some sweet royalty-free music. And special thanks to Star Wars Minute that started it all. Go on over to MoviesByMinutes.com and see if your favorite movie is there. And if it isn't, consider doing one yourself. They're a wonderful community to be a part of. Do you want to try a little uh, end of line on three? All right. One, two, three.
end of life. Put a little edit, put a little edit. Do, 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 do. Who's that program? It's Tron. Has my theme music now, yeah. Here comes Tron, and he's walking his beat. Here comes Tron on his electronic street. Here comes Tron, and he's got big feet. Here comes his name is, and what is it? Tron! Starring Bruce Boxleiter as Tron. What you talking about, program? What's going on, guys? Oh, jeez, it's Ram. <laughs> Ram, oh, Ram. <laughs> Next week, on a very special episode of Tron. You've been drinking too much energy juice. Shut up, I can quit when I want to. This is an intervention, Ram. Yori gets into the punk scene. I can quit when I want to. Why do you quit? I don't want to. <laughs> I learned it from you, Dad. What? My little runaway. My run, 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 run away. away. But we're not here to talk about runaway. All right. And Hang on. We'll just... I know. Go ahead. I'm stirring my tea, and it's very noisy. It's off mic, though. You probably can't hear it. I, it, it actually is kind of filling up the whole sound of this room. So <laughs> you can probably hear it. I'm sure it's. I'm sure nobody can hear it. I'm, I'm sure the listeners of minute seventy-five care a lot about my tea. <laughs>